as we've been going through 1 Samuel for a little over a year now, I hope um, your brain has been and is being ingrained with the big picture of where this book stands in redemptive history. 1 Samuel picks up that story when God's people were seriously floundering and everyone doing whatever they wanted to do, which is how the book of Judges ends. They had been delivered from slavery in Egypt, yet grumbled and disobeyed for 40 years in the wilderness. They'd finally entered the promised land, but floundered again and again in not trusting the Lord as as they took possession. And then as the 12 tribes of Israel each occupied their own territory, they turned over and over again from worshiping the Lord alone to worshiping other gods. The Lord raised up pagan nations around them to show them their need of him. And when they finally cried out for the Lord to deliver them from these nations in some form of oppression or conquering, the Lord would raise up and deliver for them a judge. But as this cycle kept happening over and over again, Israel became more and more debased and violated its covenant with the Lord in every way imaginable. Their seemingly hopeless condition was meant to make them aware of their need of a king who could break this cycle of idolatry and oppression. But in 1 Samuel, the people made a demand of Samuel, God's old and faithful judge, prophet, and priest. He was the last judge. The demand said that he must appoint a king for them, but there was a caveat, a condition. This will show us again how far they had wandered from the Lord. This king they wanted had to be the same as all the other nations had, a king like all the other nations around them had. God told Samuel that this demand revealed the people's hearts and that they had, in effect, rejected the Lord from being their king, continuing to forsake him and to serve other gods. But nothing takes God by surprise, and in his sovereign plan, he gave the people exactly what they wanted. A king just like all the other nations around them had, Saul, of the tribe of Benjamin, who was anointed king by Samuel. He was a tall, strong, physical specimen who looked like a king and could fight like a king, but who did not know and serve the Lord. Saul's disobedient ways before the Lord and his lack of faith were then there for all to see. And the Lord raised up another young man from the tribe of Judah who was described as a man after God's own heart. 
The problem was that even though the Lord had Samuel anoint this man after God's own heart, David, Saul would still reign as the first king of Israel until, well, we're not there yet. This is where we are in 1 Samuel. And in the meantime, David undergoes tremendous trials and testing, which should connect with us. Every one of us go through trials and testing, and there's a reason for it. And this pattern has been going on since time began. That's part of the big picture of what the God does when we go through the Old Testament. It shows us these connections and our need of him. It shows us something else, that even a nation that God calls him to, to himself still needs the Lord Jesus Christ. They still wander from him, just like the pagan nations. We've all got a sin problem, no matter what nation we're talking about. So, David's trials and testing consist of Saul trying to kill him, hunting him to kill him. David has genuine faith, but as we know and we'll keep seeing, he is a sinner just like you and just like me. The biblical record gives us ample reasons to see our own struggles and sin as we see David go back and forth in his own struggles. The difference with David is he does know the Lord. He lives a life of repentance. Uh, and just like us, sometimes it takes a while. And David's reign will point to the true king that God is showing us we all need, who will come from David's line, Jesus Christ. Chapters 24, 25, and 26 in 1 Samuel comprise a unit of 1 Samuel in which we see incident after incident of David having to learn to trust the Lord and wait for God's promise to install David as the next king. And while David waits, he is being hunted by King Saul and King Saul's men. Now we can remember chapter 24 of this unit by recalling the robe. Remember when David spares David spares Saul's life in that cave? and he cuts off a corner of Saul's robe as he's indisposed. Um, secretly, Saul didn't even know he was there, and he used it to prove to Saul just how close to death Saul had come, and David's saying, I spared your life because the Lord's the one that anointed you, and it's up to him to do this, not me. So remember chapter 24, the robe. What can you remember chapter 25 by? Well, there's a lot in chapter 25, but one way is the feast. When David set out to exact his own vengeance upon a rich man named Nabal and his entire household, he was restrained from doing so by this man's wife, Abigail, 
who by her words and actions had been used by God to keep David from grievous sin. God then surprised everyone, though, by taking his own vengeance upon Nabal after Nabal had been cluelessly glorying in his own riches and depravity at an exorbitant feast that he held. Chapter 25, the feast. We can remember chapter 26, the one we're in, because the action centers around a spear that we've already become familiar with earlier in the book. We'll see David once again sparing Saul's life, this time from being taken by Saul's own spear. No irony there. What is God doing in this tough time of trials and waiting? The same thing he's doing in your life during times of trials and waiting. The same thing he's doing in my life during times of trials and waiting. And in case you haven't gotten this yet, our life now is a time of trials and waiting. And some other things, like God preparing and sanctifying and working out his redemptive plan. In chapter 26, David, the anointed king, receives the Lord's assurance that the kingdom will certainly be his. And this assurance flows from the Lord out of David's faith in the Lord. A faith which recognizes in all these strange events that we see happening, events that show the Lord's faithful hand. Is that true of your life? You see how faithful God is through your trials and the tough times? That's the biggest lesson we can learn from every one of them. God is faithful. So this chapter, chapter 26, requires something from us. It requires that we patiently and expectantly and faithfully consider the following. These are kind of the divisions of this chapter that we're going to be flowing through. The gravity of the life and death struggle struggle that David was actually in as he waits for the Lord. It's not some fairy tale story. This was historical fact. This was true for this person and the 600 guys that were following him. Also, the patience and audacity of David as he sneaks into Saul's encampment of 3,000 men. Both those first two things, that's today. Also, going on in the chapter, the recognition of David that even though he's not yet on the throne, Saul has been made powerless by the Lord. That's encouraging to know. The distress of David also, not from the threat of Saul, but from being excluded from publicly worshiping the Lord with God's people. That part has blown me away, but we won't get there until the next time we're in 1 Samuel. And lastly, the hope 
of David. Not in Saul, not in the, that Saul would change or all of a sudden esteem David's own life. That's not where David's hope is. David's hope is in the Lord alone, in whose hands he knows he is. And we might from that, just before we read this passage, consider, is our hope in our circumstances changing to be what we want them to be? For something to work out, for us to receive something, for us to finally see something happen? Is that where our hope is? For most of us, it is. That's why we get so bent out of shape when it doesn't happen. The lesson is that no matter what happens, we, Christ's people, are in his hands. We belong to him. If you're able, would you please stand as I read the first 12 verses of chapter 26 of 1 Samuel. Our text today will be, I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. 1 Samuel 26, verses 1 through 12. Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding himself on the hill of Hekilah, which is on the east side of Jeshimon? So Saul rose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped on the hill of Hekilah, which is beside the road on the east of Jeshimon. But David remained in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness, David sent out spies and learned that Saul had come. Then David rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay, with Abner the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Saul was lying within the encampment while the army was encamped around him. Then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Joab's brother, Abishai, the son of Zeruah, who will, who will go down with me into the camp of, to Saul? And Abishai said, I'll go down with you. So David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there lay Saul, sleeping within the encampment, with his spear stuck in the ground at his head, and Abner and the army lay around him. Then Abishai said to Saul, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I won't have to strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. 
So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head, and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May be seated. Another great story, a true story. Well, first, let's consider David's grave situation. The Ziphites are at it again. Trying to gain favor from Saul by telling him where David's hiding, because they knew. And this is the second time that they've done this. The last time was in chapter 24. Saul eagerly responds to this information by taking 3,000 men with him to find David. You notice it's Israel's choicest men. David's spies, of course, have no trouble finding Saul and, and finding out that he's come and where he's encamped. So David, from some high spot on the terrain... David gets a bird's-eye view of the camp's layout, and he sees exactly where Saul and Abner, the commander of his army, are, and we find out that the army was encamped completely around the king and his army commander. So, then we change gears, and we see the patience and the boldness that faith cultivates here in David. So while David's hiding from Saul in the wilderness of Ziph, a highland area of Judah which is west of the Dead Sea, probably doing what? Wondering, wouldn't you be, every single day, what's going to happen next? How long is this going to go on? How am I going to take care of my 600 guys? Will we ever get out of this wilderness? His spies bring word that Saul and a large army are in the area looking for them once again. This is not something new. Now, instead of withering on the spot in frustration, instead of giving in to despair, and being angry at God for letting this happen again. After all, Saul's 3,000 men kind of outnumbered David's 600. David tells two men a crazy idea about going down into Saul's camp. And one of them, Abishai, actually likes it. How does that strike you? During the night, David and Abishai boldly, that's an understatement, sneak through the sleeping army to the middle of the encampment where they find Saul and Abner fast asleep, like everybody else in the army. Next to Saul, stuck in the ground at his head, was Saul's spear. 
which, remember, had been thrown at David several times in Saul's court. Can you see? Can you feel? Can you tell what these guys are thinking as they sneak in and nobody is awake? And there is the spear that Saul had tried to kill David with. And Abishai, being a young buck probably, is a little eager all through this, these accounts in every which way. He says, David, God, look what God's done. He's right here. I'll, let me take the spear, and man, I, I will shish kebab him, and that it'll take one thrust. There won't be any noise. We can get out of here, and it'll be over. And this is a real possibility in this situation. This is a great temptation for David. What an act of God's providence. How convenient. The door is open. This is God's will. But David's faced this test before, hadn't he? In a cave. Well, the conversation between David and Abishai is the focus here. Verse 8, then Abishai said to David, God's given your enemy into your hand this day. Please let me pin him to the ground with one stroke of the spear and I'll not strike him twice. It's a young guy's way of saying it only takes once. Let me have him. But David said, do not destroy him. For who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, as the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him. And here's the interesting part. Or, if God doesn't strike him, his day will come to die. Or, he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed, but I take now, but take now the spear that is at his head in the jar of water, and let's go, Abishai. Can you put yourself in that scene? No, because none of us would have gone down into the middle of this army. I don't think there's one person in here. And the guy that probably would have is not with us this morning. Abishai is chomping at the bit to seize this opportunity to get rid of David's enemy. Sounds like the same argument that David's men used when they found Saul alone in the same cave they were, back, they were in back in chapter 24, verse 4. They said, Here is the day which the Lord said, has said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. But David does not respond that way, does he? There's a difference here. Can you see it? Even from the patience that he exhibited in chapter 24 in the cave when he had the same opportunity to be done with Saul. Here, what we're seeing is David's patience, even with another opportunity, seems to have grown since the cave. His restraint is, is steadier, and it's more measured. And he's standing on something he understands better now. What is that? 
Is that something we need? Yeah. What, what is this? Is David now showing that he did learn something very valuable from the close call with Nabal in chapter 25? There he was restrained by God from taking vengeance on Nabal through Nabal's wife, Abigail. But he knew it was God that sent her, the God that used her to keep him from doing something foolish. In verse 38 of chapter 25, we read that the Lord struck Nabal and he died after that feast. He learned a lesson, and the lesson was, we see in verse 10, how David has applied his expanded understanding of who God is and how God works to, the, in, to this situation in Saul's camp. As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. In other words, hey, Abishai, the Lord could strike Saul. Or, or. In fact, David uses the same word strike here in chapter 26 that's used in 25, chapter 25, verse 38, where it says the Lord struck Nabal. And here David says, hey, Abishai, the Lord could strike Saul. The point is, what? The point is that the Lord will see to it in his own timing and in his own way. Saul's destiny is in the Lord's hands, not in David's hand. And David knows that. David has learned that the Lord can be trusted to handle both fools like Nabal and oppressors and kings like Saul when such matters are left in his hands in matters of his personal vengeance stuff. He's got it. And he doesn't waver when the chance arises. We should also observe more about the faith that David exhibited here. After his close call with Nabal, David recognized several of his own great weaknesses and much more of the grandeur and majesty of the Lord. Because that's what happens. A simple way to say this is, what's happened in your life the last 10 years? God is so much bigger than I thought. Well, how? Well, fill in the blanks. I've learned that he is. I've learned that he can do. I've learned that he has done. He promised to do. He will do. I've learned that he's got me. I've learned that, 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 that. He's bigger than I thought. In fact, he ordained all this before the foundation of the world. Wow. I can't even fathom that. Well, you can see that David's growing in his own understanding. And this is a youth who had a real good idea of who God was 
as a young man. David had taken off to satisfy his own desire for personal vengeance after this great insult he received from Nabal. And when stopped by Abigail and her humble appeals and actions, he came to his senses and he realized how close he had come to jeopardizing and ruining his whole future. The Lord made it very plain that there was no place for personal vengeance to him. Something that is very important when you end up wielding absolute power as the king of a nation. Okay, some of you are going. Well, I don't. I don't get. I don't. I'm not planning to murder my neighbor. You know, maybe a relative, but not my neighbor. We we kind of understand this a little, but this is how God is preparing a king. Okay, it's really really important. And anybody that's seen anything about current events in the last 10 years knows how vital this is and how few men in power get it. Even an anointed king had no business exacting vengeance for personal reasons. Personal reasons is what we're talking about here. So David's tendency to act impetuously and too quickly was tempered as he realized that the Lord really is sovereign and the ultimate authority and judge and that the Lord will judge all sin. It's one thing to say it. It's another thing to swallow it and realize it and live in light of it. David then was freed up. And there's no other way to say it because that's what it is. He was freed up in our text today, to act with restraint. It sounds like those are opposites, but it's not, is it? He was freed up not to sin. And that's again, in his case, was showing respect and mercy toward the Lord's anointed King Saul. Knowing that the Lord would deal with Saul in his perfect timing, which means what? It means that he's willing to wait. It's mean he's willing to wait as long as God has him to wait. And that for him meant suffering in a wilderness with 600 men. David's faith here reflected the knowledge that, in fact, we see he was not only patient, but he was emboldened. This could also be called audacity. And we see here that it was, for everybody else, as we read this, you were thinking exactly the same thing. This is audacious. This is almost, that's a word that means almost crazy, okay? It was audacious to sneak into Saul's camp. It seems crazy. It seems foolish. And yet, who can say that that was not born out of David's patient faith in the Lord? Kind of like when David stepped up to take on Goliath as a youth. This is not a new occurrence. 
To me, these two things are very close together as far as one following the other. Nobody else would step out, and I know the yellow thing ain't up there anymore, but it's, it's about up there, to fight a guy that's that tall and looks like he lived on steroids and was covered with army from head to foot and his spear was as big as a man's leg. Who would do that? This is the same guy, David. And it's not because he was something special. It was because he knew how big and special God is. Did faith set David's imagination loose in such a way that he could imagine various ways, different ways that the Lord might choose to deliver him from Saul? Because he knew he would. David had a specific promise that he would reign. Okay? We, we don't have a specific promise that we're going to be the king of something. Okay, Nobody in here, I'd be very surprised. You can tell your kids they might be anything they want to be in America, but come on. This was, this was different. This was God's people. God was the king here. He made the promise to his anointed that he had Samuel anoint. So what about it? How many of us would go, no, 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 no. Don't imagine all this stuff. You're just dreaming. You're just thinking it. Or that's exactly what we see David do in verse 10. But it's driven by faith and wisdom. The Lord could work this out. He knew he would in a direct way by taking Saul out like he did Nabal. Poof, Nabal's gone. Poof, Saul's gone. Or the Lord could bring Saul to an end in a more natural way, which is what he says. Or the Lord could remove him in a battle at some point. Now, do any of those seem far-fetched to you? No, they're not. But what David's doing is he knows that God has said something, and he's rehearsing and imagining ways that God could fulfill it. And we can do that so long as we realize that the Lord is not restricted to our range of possibilities and methods and imagination. And many times he surprises us so much that we step back and we go, I can't believe what he just did. I had no idea. How many times have you said that in your life? I had no idea that this would work out this way, that God would do this. Or I had no idea that I would have to be going through this for this long. See, all of that's included here. Our faith can be full of such imagination. Um, an easy way to remember this is faithful. Your faith can be full of imagining ways that God will do what he promised. Full of ways our mighty God can work. It's an attitude that says something like this. Who can guess how the Lord will work here? We don't know, but we know him. We know he's God, so however he wants to work, he's God. He created the world. I have no clue, but here's a couple of things that I can think of. And you know what that does? It, it can encourage you because then you're thinking about God is faithful. He will supply what I need when he knows I need it, not when I think I need it. See how different that is? And this kind of speculation then can be upbuilding. It can build your faith. It can help you reflect. Now, David also demonstrates here that even though he didn't know exactly how God would providentially deliver the kingdom over to him, listen, he did know what obedience required. 
That does not change. In this situation, it specifically meant, meant not getting rid of Saul himself. Not even touching him, really. A helpful way to understand this is to realize that any believer who faces predicaments where he doesn't know how God will work in it, anybody there? Some of us are going, yeah, every day. No, but big ones, little ones. If you face a predicament where you don't know how God will work, you still know what is or not God's will for you as you're figuring out the other. And that's what you must be faithful in. For example, a Christian may not know exactly how God will bring resolution to some marital problem, but a Christian does know that God still requires marital fidelity, love, respect, serving, cherishing, providing, etc. In the meantime, all of which we know he requires in a marriage. And you can apply that to any area where you're trying to figure out something. You may not know exactly how God's going to work it out, but you do know how to behave, how to think, how to act, how to ask for help in those situations as you're going through it. In other words, because David was away from the people of God out in the wilderness, it wasn't an opportunity to become more depraved, to let his desires go crazy. He understood this. Dale Ralph Davis writes, God's ways will frequently baffle us, but God's will is sufficiently clear to lead us in the meantime. God's ways will frequently baffle us, but God's will is sufficiently clear to lead us in the meantime. Now, don't miss the last part of verse 12, which lets us know who's doing what. It's almost like the writer sneaks it in here right at the end. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep. Because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. They wouldn't have made it if God hadn't done this. And somehow all that happened. We have an incredible opportunity again to focus on what Christ did for us in a way that he ordained here as we take the Lord's table. The Lord's Supper is not appointed for the physical body. In case you had noticed the text in the New Testament, the Lord had ended the meal before the physical body, for the physical body, before he began the supper, which he appointed for the soul, which we call the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table, or Communion. Scripture teaches that us that we receive true spiritual nourishment, spiritual nourishment when we feed on Christ by faith in, as we take the Lord's Supper. Uh, John 6, 
Jesus says, for instance, that's the big passage that says, I am the bread of life. He's not something that's just kind of over here on the table and we say, hey, every once in a while, we read a verse. He's our life. And the symbol is the food that nourishes us. He is our spiritual life. 